Hello everybody and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, it's my birthday. In fact, if you're listening to the day this episode is released, it's my birthday! Hooray! But why all this uh, self-aggrandizing birth talk? Well, long-time listeners of the program will know that once per year, when it's my birthday, we hit the birthday episode, and I, as host of this program, can pick any film that I want, as opposed to all the other films which I usually pick, but for, you know, significant reasons, like anniversaries or things like that. Uh, So, what have I picked for my birthday this year? We're moving away from the Coen brothers after the last couple of years. We're not quite jumping back into the zany comedies of Airplane or um, uh, History of the World. Uh, We're going somewhere slightly different, maybe somewhere exactly between those two categories. We're going to 1988's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, directed by Terry Gilliam. And as always, we have someone who has seen the film before and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film and making her debut appearance on the programme. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Christy Leach. Thank you very much, Dr. Stephen Platt, for inviting me to uh, this week's episode. And may I say, happy birthday. Thank you, Christy. Uh, just for the folks at home, who are you, Christy, and what do you do? Oh, that's a fun question. Um, my name is Christy Leach. I am a digital content creator for a consulting agency in um, the city. Um, I just work on short videos, uh, website content, manage the back end of websites, you know, fun sort of video and animation and photography sort of work. Mm. Um, and as you are aware, I have a background in film. We um, we actually studied film together all of those years ago. We absolutely did. Yes, Christy is uh, one of the reasons I have a film degree because I stood on her coattails and just uh, let her drag me across <laughs> the line. Uh, so it's lovely to have you on the program finally, Christy. Thank you very much, Stephen. What do you know about the adventures of Baron Munchausen? Amusingly, I actually do not know much at all beyond what you just read earlier. Um, I know it's directed by Terry Gilliam and it has quite a few familiar faces um and it's got eric idol in it of course so i'm having i'm thinking python but um yeah i know very little um yeah, it's going to be a big surprise okay well joining us is someone who has seen the film before uh and who will not be surprised by the content today it <laughs> is dr ellen sears i mean i don't know it's been a little while since i've seen this film so there might be a few things where i'm like oh my god i forgot that this was in here holy crap because it's this film is a lot it certainly this is. Film is a lot. Uh, welcome back to the program, Dr. Ellen. Thank you. Just for the folks at home, uh, in case they haven't heard an episode with you on. Sure. Uh, who are you, Dr. Ellen, and what do you do? Uh, first and foremost, I'm your wife. Yes. Um, which means that I get like podcast rights, which is very nice. I'm also, uh, generally speaking, if somebody has to drop out very last minute, I'm the one where Stephen goes, hey, can you be on this? Which I'm very stoked about because I'm nearly up to episode 50. Yeah. I'm yeah. so excited because then I get to pick one as well. You do, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I have fingers in lots of pies at any given time in terms of work. I work as an educator in the field of theatre and drama and dance and career learning. I work at Murdoch University. I work at a couple of local performing arts schools. I work at a local dancing school. I do occasional one-off random workshops with like superhero yoga and fitness things. And Mm. I do do a lot of different things. I'm always doing something different. What can you tell us about this film, which also does a lot of different things? Yeah, in a vague, oh non-spoilery sort of way. Okay, so I watched this film probably about six or seven years ago, and I was introduced to it by a friend of mine who... Um, a, a girl I went to high school with dated this guy. Very nice man. Um, and then they broke up, and I still continued being friends with him, and she continued being friends with him. Just a, a, a nice dude. And I happened to be over in Queensland, where he had moved to five or six years ago I think it was and he was like hey do you want to like come and hang out and like watch this wacky movie and I was like sure and I'm pretty sure Sarah was there as well oh Dr. Sarah Curtis Dr. Sarah Curtis yeah I'm pretty sure Sarah was also on this trip Mm -hmm. and we had like a sleepover and with him and his then girlfriend now wife and we watched this film and I was just like Luke what what are we watching what are we watching this is very weird it's very python-esque um, I think you, you nailed it with that, Christy, when you were like, I'm expecting something Python-esque. Yes, it's very, it's just very ridiculous, over the top, very funny. It's sort of, it's not really episodic, like there is an overarching narrative, but it's got that sort of feel of a, of a Python film. And it's, it's a lot of it is just being like, oh my God, this person's in this. Oh my God, this person's in this. 
So yeah, so it's a it's a fun film, and it's as old as I am, so that's nice. <laughs> yes, and <laughs> it's a really hard film to recommend. Yeah, from memory. like like what is probably the film that this is most like? Because I'm struggling to think. What is the film that is most like Baron Munchausen? Probably, it would probably be one of the Pythons and it would probably be something like Meaning of Life, I guess. Like Meaning of Life if there was a central character. Mm. Like they had in Life of Brian. Like, okay. if, like if those two movies had, had like a love child, maybe something like that. But then add a whole bunch of like people dropping acid on top of that. Okay. Like it's it's a real it's a real trip of a film, and I think a lot of the cast and crew were probably on something. It was the late eighties; they were probably coked up. Yeah, fair Just enough. judging by some of the performances, yeah, and like the, the, what it is, it's a very absurd little mm. film. I'm looking forward to watching it again. I think it's going to be interesting looking at it now because, yeah, when I first watched it, it would have been probably very early in my phd and i am mm. now a changed woman because that's <laughs> destroyed me emotionally yes well with all so that we'll being <laughs> with all that being said shall we watch the adventures of baron munchausen yeah let's do it yeah let's do it all right okay for those of you listening at home pop in those dvds load up those streaming services and get those modicums of snuff that can be most efficacious ready as we watch the adventures of baron munchausen Welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And I'm joined once again by our special guests for today, Dr. Ellen Sears. Hello. And Christy Leach. Hello. Christy, that was your first time watching (laughs) The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. What did you think? It was quite an experience, if I must be honest. I... I... (laughs) Your attempts at um, an explanation with like our vague words of of Python-esque, you know, it's going to be grand, grand, pretty grand. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's a Terry Gilliam film. Didn't even actually adequately prepare me for that film. I don't know that there's anything that can adequately prepare you for this film. 100%. To be honest. I don't think anything Like it's an experience. It's like uh, we, we, we were just talking in the kitchen before when we were making cups of tea to watch this with. And I was like, you know what this is like? Watching this film for the first time for me was like the first time I watched the Rocky Horror Picture Show where I was just like, what is happening? Oh my God, the entire time. But you know you're experiencing something fabulous. Yeah, Mm. no, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you enjoyed it? Yes, I, yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ellen, (laughs) this was your first time watching it in a few years. Yeah. Uh, How how was it for you? Um, I think this is the third time I've watched this because I watched it in in Queensland. And then I'm pretty sure I made you watch it. You did. And so this would be my third time watching. And there's there's quite a few bits that I've forgotten. I feel like it's one of those things where you kind of watch it and then you forget three quarters of it. And then as you watch it, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. this thing. Like there's certain <laughs> things that I like remembered really well. So like obviously like Uma Thurman as Venus, um, the ridiculous cannons and bits and pieces, like the, like the broad brush strokes of it. Um, and like specific gags, like the little girl running around doing her thing and you know, as it was going on, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. But mm. yeah, a lot of it I, I still didn't remember from previous ones because it's been a while and it, it's, it's how do you keep track of this plot? You yeah, I like, just... <laughs> I had forgotten, I reckon, a good 90% of this film. Yeah. I'd forgotten <laughs> Oliver Reed and he is, he literally has steam come out of his ears more than once. Yeah, several times. Um, Like, like there were so many <laughs> things which I'd, I'd forgotten about from it's this so film. It's so silly. Yeah, and it's... It's so lovely. And it was, again, when we were looking at potential films for doing for the birthday film, um, it's really hard because um, with, with this program, you only get to do it once. And so, yeah. you know, I want, we will do Blazing Saddles one day, but I was like, it's on the list. Do I want to do it today? No. <laughs> um, but Baron Munchausen, when it, when it came to mind, I was like, no, I think we really need to do this one because it's not a film that comes up in a lot of conversations. And it's or... not something you would just watch on a Saturday afternoon. No, either. it's it's yeah. an experience. It's the kind of thing that you like subject your friends to. It's yeah. not a thing that you're like, oh, wait, I need to watch a film. What do you want to watch? Oh, I don't know. Oh, you know what? We should watch this film. No, it's mm. like, oh my God, I have to show this to you so you can understand 
It's like that moment just when how your friend is like, I haven't seen Life of Brian. And you're like, you haven't seen Life of Brian? Sit mm. down right now. But yeah. not seeing Life of Brian is somewhat... Um, Understandable. Well, well, it's, it's somewhat because sort of like you haven't seen it, but also somewhat whereas understandable. In this, whereas in this, not, it's like, you haven't seen it? I can understand yeah. why. I'm going to make you watch it now. <laughs> yeah, you weren't Terry Gilliam or a member of his family. Like, like it's it, yeah. it does have that sort of very personal feel to it. Um, the, the story... Um, Such as it is, because yes, we, we do try and uh, run through what the plot is. It's it's a circular narrative. It's a fable. Really. It, is. It, it, it is. It's a fable about this uh, Baron Munchausen character played by John Neville, and he's he's just great. Let's just take a little stop right here and go. John Neville is really, really good. He's in this really, film. really great. Yeah. Yes, yeah. he carries it. He carries the whole narrative, mm. he and does. he's just extremely charismatic, but also. A caricature in in himself. Yeah, you um, kind of you kind of forgive the like, oh, it's a bit sexist thing because you're like, yeah, I I know what character archetype you're leaning into here. Like, I know this character, but it's and, a very popular character. And, and the thing is, is that he's essentially harmless. You know, like the most frisky he gets is a bit of a smooch on Uma Thurman, which is like, he's a lot older than she is. She's like barely of legal age in this, so that's a little bit icky. But like, mm. ultimately, it's like. This is actually pretty harmless. But also, and that, that case in particular is part of this grand sweeping romantic dance yeah. between uh, the Baron and Venus. Yeah, it's very mm. like consensual. It's, yeah. it's not like he's like, ah, like forcing it on him, whatever else. Yeah, not if, like... If it was anything like that, I don't think this film would work. Because uh, uh, yeah. he's, he is a very charming and charismatic sort of character. And you're kind of like, yeah, okay, I'm getting swept along with this. Like, I'm, yeah. And it, it is very much in, in that sort of tradition of, um, it, this is late 18th century, very much yeah. in those sort of historical mm-hmm. drama things. The more serious ones like Sharp or the fantasy ones where yeah. th- there's the dashing hero who all the ladies love. And this... Isn't this also when they were yeah. doing like restoration comedies for like Shakespeare, where they were like, we're going to take all these tragedies and give them happy endings. Restoration comedies were from the 1660s to 1710s, so a good hundred years before the setting for this one. Yeah, but so we would be going now into things more like your melodramas and your pantomimes and all those kind of things, developing yeah. into those kind of things. So it kind of, mm. yeah, makes sense. In, yeah, I mean... It's, it's uh, building on those traditions I mean, of those restoration comedies yeah, and then I, on... I mean, the setting itself is quite... Um, anachronistic it is oh yeah oh, yes. it is like yeah oh, like the course. nuclear warhead that they're making <laughs> i love it that, yes. re- that okay. mention of press the button you don't need to see the, the people in the eyes you see the people die it's like oh what's the God. point of that where's the fun where's in that where's the fun in that, in that? Oh thank God. you eric idol yeah um but yeah so baron munchausen is yeah. this is this legend in this in this world and mm-hmm. there is a play of his life being performed by sultan sons um although Salt has no sons. He has one daughter in Sally, who is this little rebellious, like Plucky nine-year-old little, girl. She's basically Matilda. Yeah, and she's you know going around, Revolution. going like, why? Yeah, graffitiing the signs and changing sons to daughters, and being like, why can't we say daughters? And Salt's like, oh, I never should have t- taught you how to read. It was only going to bring trouble. It's so tradition. She, it's tradition. Yeah, that's yeah. the way it's always done. Yeah, yeah, and she, so she's very much like downtrodden, and they're putting on plays in this theatre that literally has cannons being fired at it. You've got... I just love the fact that there are audience members with, like, bleeding head wounds just sitting there watching the play, like, oh, this is really yeah. good. You've, got, you've <laughs> also got Horatio Jackson, played by Jonathan Price, as this sort of Lord Veterinary, sort of mayor, overseer of the town villain, mm. who is entirely on the side of like logic and science and the age of reason reason and bureaucracy keeping the entire populace locked yeah. in this war uh, to the point where the soldiers aren't fighting back because it's a wednesday is yeah. the reason that they give like, like and they're not meant to attack the, the turks on a wednesday i think yeah. still one of my favorite parts was literally the very beginning when they arrest the hero who's just you know mm. single-handedly taking out cannons and he's like lock up Lock up that guy. We can't possibly have him inspiring the normal peasants mm. and, you know, offering them hope. We get rid of him, execute him. Yeah. yeah no, it, which it, is must, literally... You must, must keep them downtrodden. Yeah, it's the storyline. Yeah, and it's wonderfully absurd. And again, shout out to Sting for his... Uh, for just turning up with his thousand-yard stare. And into this world steps the real Baron Munchausen, this old man going, no, 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 you're doing it all wrong. Like that kind of thing. Real just, six characters in search of an author bullshit. Like yeah. it's just really. <laughs> and just, just, just causing chaos in the theatre and like swinging his sword around. 
Um, fronting the socks off everybody. Fronting the socks off people, charming the ladies. Uh, <laughs> and, and just doing all of this sort of stuff that he then spends the, the rest of the film doing. It, it, it's actually a really great scene in establishing who the Baron is and how the world around him reacts and shapes and how he is this... He defines his own reality. Yeah, yeah he, he is this fantastical, chaotic element... But it's not really chaos as such. It just seems like chaos in a world that is ordered by reality. Defies and reason. reason. Yeah. yeah. Defying he, reason. Yeah. And he, because he rejects these conventions, can do... The film rejects these conventions. Yeah. But he can do he kind can, of literally he's anything. An, well, like you said, he's an unreliable narrator. He sort of like can take takes control of the narrative just by like him being there alters the plot. Mm. Sort of turns around him yeah and i think as it were the film does a lot of great um it does a great the film does a great job in in multiple occasions in showing how he warps reality around him and i think it's partly done really well with with using the stage yeah where he starts telling the story and the actors are like playing along about how he started the war with the turks because he and the sultan fell out and there's that wonderful transition shot where the actor Mm -hmm. who is playing one of the people in the the sultan's court is on stage and then they turn 90 degrees and they are in the, the palace. sultan's palace for yep. realsies yeah and it's beautiful and that, that was incredible there were yeah points definite points added for transitions mm. and just the filmic the filmic beauty in mm. how he was just a masterful use of just a simple 90 degree turn yeah and mm. you just had this complete immersion into the storyline it was it was amazing, um, and you're right. He pulled it off several times, and mm. these days that you wouldn't even do that. You you do some you know nice explosion or a quick cut or mm. something, but it's just had this beautiful. You're falling into the story, yeah. You and sort of it's don't realize pulling you along, yeah. And you don't even know that you're suddenly a part of it. And I, I think um, towards the end of the film, he, like even the people in it didn't realize they were in it. You mm. know, yeah. They all look very shell shocked when they come back to the theater at the end, mm. and they're all just like. Well, it, it's great mm, the way what? it does that as well is mm-hmm. because we, we we spend so much time with these characters sort of relearning who they are in terms of the Baron's party. So like mm-hmm. when we meet Bertolt, um, who is Eric Idle's character for the first time. Um, Which is just Eric Idle, just Eric Idle. Yeah. yeah he, Basically. When we first meet him in the flashback, he is just, just playing this like young, super fast running guy that has to wear weights on his legs to stop him being the flash but then when we meet him for real in quotation marks in the cage in the moon um he's <laughs> what a sentence <laughs> he's this old confused man who it spends ages like trying to remember who he is and all of these characters from the party um like adolphus and gustavus have sort of gotten old and forgotten who they were or, or wanted to be someone different they've lost their dreams yeah it's yeah. that metaphor for growing old you mm. lose what it is that made you young yeah you lose growing your up and growing old and yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I really love the dynamic the way they show that as well between the baron and sally and how yes. sally yeah. and the it's baron like, sort of feed into each other's yeah. need for the magic to be there yes mm. or the fantasy to be there yeah and that whole idea of you know he's like you know you're not giving up, are you? Mm. Well, she, from the very beginning, I mean, not the very beginning, that was that beautiful, lovely establishing shot of the city, mm. uh, but like very close when we zoom in on her mm. in the bottom of the um, statue, statue and she's scrolling out, you know, sons and scrolling in daughter. Mm. Uh, she's the only one that is looking beyond the established narrative and breaking, mm. like yeah. breaking into it's very, reality. Yeah, it's very, it's very meta in that way. Mm. I love it. I love it. So much of it is just twisted. Yeah. And you, so many metaphors and, and just jokes in jokes. Mm. So, uh, and it's yeah. that repetition as well, I think, because that then draws your attention to it. It's not even necessarily rule of threes. It's literally like, we've got the story, we've, we've been talking about the story at the beginning, like in the theatre, and then you see the rest of that story actually play out. And then it's a cyclical narrative because it's like, that is just one of the times that I died. And it's like, what? Mm. What? Because you were kind of like, Oh no! Like he's actually dead. Like they're actually going to do the thing. Oh my god! Yeah. yeah. The the thing that this film does really well is we have all of these like standalone narratives, which feels very like a thousand and one Arabian Nights. Where oh yeah, I was going to say one hundred percent. We 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 have his his initial fallout with the Sultan and the Turks, and then we have the cut back to the contemporary narrative, and then 
we see him fly to the moon in a hot air balloon made of women's underpants. Which is so funny. Um, that came out of nowhere. The whole scene on the moon and then the scene where they're with the... Um, uh, they go and visit Vulcan and Venus and then there's inside the fish and then they wash up and they have the battle and then he dies. But by that point, we as the audience, as well as the characters who are in the theatre, those actors and those audience members, so are so entrenched in everything that's happening and so invested that mm. when we suddenly cut to the old Baron going, of course, that was just one of the times I died, they look shell-shocked that it's like, wait, what? That was all story. We all were, really. Yeah. It, it really dragged you along and then it was very abrupt and very mm. sudden and then you, that point in the film where you literally are, okay, what's real? Even though you're watching an absurdist, surrealist vision, mm. yeah, um, I think at one point likened it to a bit of an LSD trip. Oh, you yeah, then very... lose your sense of reality completely dragged back to, you know, reality, mm. inverted mm. air quotes. Uh, and you're like, what? What's, what's happened? And yeah. then it pulls you along again. Yeah. Mm. Again, unreliable narrator kind of like yanking your chain the whole way through. And you're just like, I'm not sure what's going to happen next. Mm. And, and it just happens then. And you're like, okay, yeah. I guess this is what's happening yeah. now. I'm going to go uh, with this. Cool. And it's cool. very, it's very engaging largely. Um, oh yeah like it, th- there are sequences where i was a bit like uh this isn't working as much for me but it's still interesting there's still Very always long film yeah which also doesn't help well, the... although that said we hit an hour I... and a half and you were like oh man like i yeah i was like i thought we were only like an hour into it yeah <laughs> like mm. halfway through we're like, oh no no we're nearly at the end oh and uh, you're right it did mm. sorry no no go ahead it, it, it did break it up in a way and it was kept short and there weren't any uh, long drawn out jokes or skits they keep returning to. Like every little segment is new, even though it's happened before and you know where it's going. Yeah. And and I think because it's just such a visually interesting film. Oh, yes. The, the, the so different. The sets the are incredible sets. and the way that they're shot is incredible. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. And even and even looking at like yes. obviously we were watching the sequence on the moon where um you were saying Stephen like from the trivia that that was the set that they wanted and they were like we've run out of money so they're like okay we're just going to do like flat paper cutouts. Like, like yeah, flats. we're going to we're going to print out the storyboard. We're going to print out the storyboarded things and yeah. just put them up and have them moving around <clears throat> on dollies or whatever. And I was like, but you know what? I think that totally works because the the, the it just adds to that absurdist mm-hmm. feel and that mm-hmm. weird vibe because it's like we're on the moon and there's the town and it's moving around and it's doing stuff and i think it's, and really, it's all flat it's really interesting as well because obviously this, this movie cost a lot of money oh it, my was, God. it was meant to cost 23 million dollars and it cost about 46 which, how much should it make back uh eight. <laughs> eight eight million not eight but uh, sorry i should say uh eight dollars um, one one admission but that it was, was um Terry Gilliam. <laughs> it, it was no. <laughs> so it was just so well i thought it was just so well was done in terms of, you, you go yeah. yeah you go from this big sequence with the um the, the the sultan's palace and then coming back to that that set in what i'm gonna call paris but isn't paris yeah. just like vaguely french river city um <laughs> yeah. getting getting blown apart by uh the turkish army and then they fly and they go through the storm and suddenly they're on the moon and yes because they ran out of budget that set is just the drawings that gilliam had done for what they wanted to make and they had them all moving around across each other and then so boxing them in. But it didn't affect the quality of the film. No. It, like, and I think that's the beauty of it and his creativity and just his genius. Mm. Like some studios that would have just like completely stopped production or they like, would have no, gone back into it. reshoots or rescheduled. But he's like, you know, we're, we're making this happen mm. despite the ridiculousness that was going on behind the scenes i also think it really fits into um the character of the the king of the moon okay you're going to talk about the king of the moon now i just want to bring him in because yeah, no, you have this to. is robin williams yeah. it is robin williams. it is robin williams and he didn't get credited for this you know he's he's got a um a, a pseudonym that he's using um but yeah he's he is just eccentric he's just robin williams possibly on some sort of drugs <laughs> wouldn't surprise me honestly but, but at this, but at this just, time period and yeah. the, the level of like manic yeah although although actually I that's think that, he that's needs made... drugs to be that manic like no, i know well, I, think I mean it... let's be fair though i think robin williams's track record over the years showed that he is possibly 
the greatest improvising performer of all time. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that you can achieve that by being on drugs all the time. So so I will take that back a little bit. Yeah. He is so He's really wonderful. Good at this. Where he's been given this concept of this this character whose head and body are at war with each other and when the head is separate it is free to build the world that he wants but when it's with the body it's very like lusty and uh, you know the line he uses which is um, i have no time for flatulence and orgasms when he's trying to get away from his body again like it's he he just understood what that character needed to be he's so disgusting when the head is attached to the body and he's just like mashing fruit into his face and like spitting it at people so i was like oh Mm. what a disgusting character i was like again it was like oh i know this kind of character is absurd Mm. Yeah, yeah, very absurd. Yeah, and, and uh, just the whole sequence on the moon, which was probably the sequence I felt was maybe the one that... Well, because we're still getting into it. We're still establishing... Well, that's just it. It was the scene that made me go, okay, maybe this is the one that is a little slower, particularly because of the cage stuff as well. That cage set was very pretty, though. But, that, but that's just it. It's all pretty and it all is just engaging, even though... Yeah, like that, and then you you almost have a repetition of oh, the Baron is messing around with a powerful man's wife again when they go to Vulcan and uh, he he meets Venus and they start dancing and having a little smooch. Mm. But even with those repetitions, again, it was as you're saying, it's that cyclical storytelling. It is that that sort of fantasy trope character where you have his uh, his tagalongs who are being like, no, oh, here we go, like that kind of thing. Mm. It's it, yeah, it just it just does a really good job of like making it feel like a fable yeah yeah we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna climb down from the moon using the the queen of the moon's hair Hair. and then we're going to turn that into a rope and then the rope we're gonna chop it off at the top and then reattach it at the bottom Mm. so that we can complete suspension keep going yeah no so brilliant Mm. so and then we and then they all fall And you made a, you made a really good point when we were watching Christie that in any other film Eric Idle as Bertolt would be the comic relief. Yeah, and I still kind of think that he is, but there's so much comic stuff happening. Yeah, that he's it, kind of just yeah. part of it. He's, just, <laughs> he's the voice of yeah. the reason or the watcher being like, "Oh, that's a bit strange." Yeah, I'm never having fish again after he gets <laughs> spat out of the sea Giant monster. Fish. Like, yeah, you're just like. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah I'll see that. It's beautifully done. Um, Some big shades of Pinocchio and mm. Moby Look, Dick and I just lots uh, of things in there. I watched this film wearing... I came in wearing several hats. I didn't know what I was going to expect. Um, you came out going, I don't know which hat to I don't know right which one. hat to put back on. <laughs> yeah, like wearing my, my filmy, filmic conventions, like cinematography hat. I'm just like... It was just staggering. If anyone is... Uh, on the other end is uh, into just looking at cinematography and the way it can be used to, to engage your audience in the narrative. Mm. Give this film a, a watch because mm. it is is truly the language and the taste of it comes across in like every mm. shot, every aspect of production design. Mm. It's all woven together. Mm. You can really see the the captain at the helm in this film, mm. despite the madness that yeah. we've discovered is happening behind the scenes. Like, yeah, and and the. the we, we, we touched on it briefly, but I feel like we do need to spend a little bit of time going, look at the sets. Yeah, the sets. Just look at them. Like when they had the money and they, they spent so much money on those sets. They're beautiful. And they're just yeah. the camera movement. I'm, I'm sorry. I Venus mean, I is think. Shell. Yeah, yeah, Venus is shell. But like when you know that one crane shot is a whole day shoot to set up that one shot mm. and it's going to cost you like $100,000 to get the crane out there. They had like four or five crane shots. Yeah, no wonder it was so expensive. <laughs> like, like they had a horse coming out of the ocean at one point. Like that's, that's an ocean, that's a tank shoot mm. with a crane They had shoot. a lot of water. They had a lot of water. A lot of sets mm. with water. And that shot where, because they've fallen to the bottom of the oh, earth. Oh, and the cameras are upside down? Yeah. The cameras are upside down, yeah. and you have oh. that shot of Eric Idle like treading water, but you're upside down oh. above the water. And then it rotates. The camera around. rotates, and as it rotates, it goes oh. under the water, and yep. then emerges back from the water as it goes the right way up. Yeah, is 
just stunning. Just doing that kind of a rotation from upside down to right side up is very difficult to do because like mm. I was in an advertising campaign a couple of years ago where they did that, but they didn't take it in and out of water. And, like that was difficult. Mm. And I it, was doing a handstand at the same time. So, you know, like, mm. like it was a weird one. These days we have these amazing 360 degrees cranes and yeah. they have the most amazing gimbals that do this. But it, back then, no. I mean, this is still, oh my God. On film. 32. Two years 33. ago. 33. 33 years, years ago. 33. Oh, 33. Okay. Um, <laughs> the technology was different. They, a lot of this was huge, heavy equipment. Heavy cameras, yeah. And we've got shots here that are dolly tracks. There's a dolly shot in the end, which is like, it's got to be like 20 meters long, but is incredible. And then you've got crane shots coming over, over walls with little children running through transitioning to like running i'm like oh my god and there's explosions happening operator on that film yeah Mm. all those wide shots as well where you were like oh my god so many wide wide shots holy crap and but they can because they've got these like huge sets these practical like beautifully rendered sets with all their bits and pieces and i think practical is the correct word because i think we become so jaded and used to Digital effects Let's these just put days. Everything in and, yeah. Oh yes, we'll put it in a post. It's going to be done later. Mm. The special effects are done later. We'll do that on green screen mm. studio, etc. But these are practical effects. Mm. These are. Oop, you're standing in the wrong mark. You're going to lose an ear and a finger. This is from the the days when your pyro person on set only had nine fingers. Mm. Well, eight. You know, like mm. it. It wasn't. It wasn't safe. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting as well that while we were watching it, one of the other filmmakers that you said that this reminded you of was Peter Jackson. Mm. Yeah. And, and the way that some of the horse shots in Lord of the Rings were shot. I mean, as well, like the siege towers in this, like the horses, the elephants, like this is like a lot of the fight scenes in this. I'm like, PJ basically just did this, but bigger in mm. Return of the King. Well, you know had- what I mean? And mm. and and Two Towers. And but he also, the- he, he had advances in cgi yeah i was gonna say exactly. he had a lot of digital huge technology. advances in cgi but he did it very well well a lot well. of this i'm very impressed is actors and extras yeah and like real points people to makeup and costume because at all yeah. points never in this film do you get let down by a character or an extra mm. like every single one of them speaking of a character slash set dressing crossover death Oh. The portrayal of death as this winged skeleton, this witch in lace the, gloves, yeah, yeah, it's, over the bones, yeah. yeah, and the way like like it's Sally dignity, destroying it? it with the flaming candle. Okay, that is that is still messing me up. That shot, that is like I cannot wrap my head around. I can't figure out if it's just the, the heart shape, the mm. fact that like sorry so if everyone else this happens near the beginning of the film when we're still transitioning between theatre and story, we've we still haven't quite managed the whole suspension of disbelief the the theater they're in is being bombed everyone's running around people are dying and then we we see munchausen he gets killed by a bit of falling Mm. timber and death is coming to take him and the girl picks up a flame throws it a little candelabra yeah just ditches it at him but it's a pain it look and it's set up for you to be like oh was that was that set dressing on the theater in the storyline or was it actually death and then she walks through that into the story i don't know mm. but it's a, it's a liminal transitional space it's just <laughs> yeah. messing with my head and, and the whole why can't you just leave me to die yeah and, and and the thing that i really appreciate from this watching which i don't think i picked up on as much last time is how just just how like the disc world this is into terry pratchett's writing stuff like yeah. it's because they've yeah. got death and they've got a character like veterinary and all the characters in this world are it's these same level of wackiness and it's that yeah. whole thing about like um obviously like the people in power like punching down mm. at the people beneath them as well yeah and that kind of thing there's a lot of pratchett-esque mm. but these these characters who are like powering through the story on the power of narrative like they figured out that narrative is what gets them through yeah and it's just wonderful and like we 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 haven't seen a lot of very good discworld screen adaptations maybe terry gilliam um should have done wow can you imagine that i can and the thought is is bonkers i don't think we'll ever get it sadly but um but but like i mean yeah because unfortunately like that most recent watch series was was 
dreadful and disgusting and really not relevant to the Discworld. But like the the ones that um <laughs> that Sky did with um David Jason, like Hogfather, Color of Magic and Going Postal. Going Postal. I love Going, Going Postal, Postal was yeah. so good. Like they did really good, but they obviously have a much more reduced budget. Um and they, they managed to achieve some of that crazy <laughs> imagery. <laughs> the TV I'd... films. Yeah. It's <laughs> a very weird <laughs> drama production you but, get TV yeah, film. But but the idea of having like Terry Gilliam on something like that, it, it just feels as though they're sort Bogs of drink, the mind. they're drinking from the same trough. And it's something that we don't see a, a lot of in in film mm-hmm. is something that is truly this type of absurd. Oh yeah, no. One hundred percent. But I also feel that this interacts with us on this plane of reality. Yeah. Sorry for sounding a bit over the top there, but there are so many metaphors that can be dug out of this film that oh are God, still yeah. applicable whole today. Like yeah, that the whole, like, whole the, storyline. Yeah. It's the, like, I can't exist in this world of science and reason. You know, there is no place for cyclopses. You know, mm. where is... There's no place for where fantasy. Where is the fantasy? Yeah, yeah. Where, is, where is the... And, and then when they're talking about as well, like, oh, you know, we're making weapons for stuff. I was like, oh, hello, end of the Cold War. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. And then the fact that they bring in a nuclear weapon. Which yeah. Is, which is absurd in the setting. But, which is very ind- anachronistic. Yeah, but yeah. also makes Acronym- sense. Yeah, anachronistic. Because yeah. Vulcan is there going, you know, oh, this is uh, like this prototype we're working on. And they have that whole commentary about... Like, oh yeah, in, in warfare is getting to the point where you can just press a button and you can kill everyone and their wife and their children and their pets. And their dogs and cats yeah, and their from chickens and thousands their whatever. Of, thousands of miles away. You have the god of war, basically, yeah. being there, the Americans, sorry, on selling their weapons mm. to then have to fight yeah. again yeah. in that cycle of the Gulf War. Yeah. Like, it's... A, a little I mean, shout out yeah. as well to Oliver Reed as Vulcan. Yeah, Great job, Oliver. His fluttery eyelashes are just beautiful. Mm. And I love the fact that he's just like... And then just like, eyelash flutters. I'm like, I love that. Yeah, when he melts, when when he and Venus make up. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that relationship isn't healthy, but it's also... It's, 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 it was literally it's, like, oh, you know, it's back the to gods. work, They're basically. capricious, we know this. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The, the, gods, the gods themselves are pantomimic, and I really to be. appreciate that they are depicted as such in this. Yeah. Yes, it's, very changeable. Yeah. Oh, another diamond. Just yeets it into the pile yeah. of diamonds, and and again, the the way that the relationship between the king and queen of the moon is shown mm-hmm. is showing that sort of central thesis of of the film about mm. logic versus um, humanity, or in yeah. the case of the king and the moon, being purely the head and being the body, and that character just having no equilibrium between the two. Yeah, mm-hmm. like he, he's he's not found that balance. Yeah, I think um, that is literally that's the question: is mm. how do we find the balance between yeah. the absurd and the real? And then but, on yeah. top of that, how do you deal with getting old as well? True. That's that's what all. Which is the absurdest thing of all? Yeah, it's it's just beautifully done. I think everyone is pitching mm. their performances at exactly the right level as well. Yeah, it's yeah. very pantomimic, but like, in, and like, again, yeah, Jonathan Price. Jonathan oh, Price, so great. Just... You just want to deck him. Yeah. No. Which is exactly. I'm sorry. No, you don't want to deck him. I I think he does a fantastic job. He does do a fantastic um, job. He's great. He's a very very good villain. nice young Jonathan Price playing mm. exactly the same villain that he was in. You know, Tomorrow Never Dies. Was it Tomorrow Never <laughs> yeah, Dies? Yeah, Tomorrow Never yeah. Dies. Yeah. All oh, things. Exactly the same. And you're yeah. just like, yes. Yeah. No. He's, it's a good, he's a good villain. He's a good mm. villain. Um. That the Baron gets killed, no. sort of, at the end. Oh. And Christy, as the first-time viewer, you bought into that. I did. You? I did. Embarrassingly, I was like, "What?" Like I was, I was waiting for the switch out or the, you know, the coming back to life. And then they had his funeral, and you were like, "Oh no!" I was like, legit, like whoa. And I was kind of waiting for his body to like wink. Or, yeah, like, I was waiting. Yeah, well, like the guy here got his head cut off that fell on that woman's lap, and then just did the wink, slow wink. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. No, I fell. I fell for that one, and then I, I legit was to you guys. I was like, "Is that it? Is is it's is that the end? It? Is that how it's going to end? Yeah." Mm. And then I then of and course, I was going. Twist. I actually don't remember how this ends. <laughs> I don't think it's embarrassing to be caught out by that ending because it's it's done so well where if they are honouring the way that it's shot, the way the death is shot. And the way it's sort of like showing that interaction between the consequences of reality. Like, you can't be this fantastical being and get away with this. It feels like it's that argument between Horatio, who fires the shot, 
and um, the Baron who, who gets mm. killed. And I, I just really love that the film it sets it up so well that it does trick you and that death does come and yeah. Sally can't rescue him this time and it's sort of almost as though heroes, in quotation marks, like the Baron, can't live in the age of reason. Yes. But, Kill, killed by reason. Yeah. Which is just really, really cool how that's done. And again, the Doctor turning up in all yeah, these big creepy no clothes. It's, yeah. yeah, wonderful. But then, of course, it's all a play. It's all part of the show and he rides off into the sunset with the, the Turks having rides off, into the rides off into the sunset and then disappears in a twinkle of the sun. Yeah. Was he even really a person at all? Or was he just a figment of our imagination? I'm so intrigued by this film. Mm. I feel like there's probably a lot of theories about like, <laughs> like, but what, but what does it all mean? Like, what, how does the, what actually happened? Yeah, no, I'm stuck. Trying I'm, to make sense of it. And I'm I feel still like, stuck in that point, really. Yeah, I feel, I feel like it's kind of like, you can't make sense of it. There is no sense to be made. I don't know. I, I'd like to try maybe at some point, but I, I feel like this is something that um, mm. when we were still at uh, film school, we could have written a lot about a lot. And it'd be mm. one of those. I feel like there's that... a few PhD theses. In this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. And and the fact is, is that, yeah, Gilliam wrote this with uh, Charles McKeon, who, yep. who plays um, one of the party. He plays Adolphus, the, the, the crack shot. Oh. <laughs> Which I think is hey, lovely. Hey, yeah, with his strength. Voice in the second half. Yeah. Um, no, it's just beautifully, beautifully done. Um, it's, ju- it's just... I can't believe I forgot how good this film is because it's been several years. It's yeah. just so enjoyable. I'm really glad we watched it. So yeah. thank you very much for... Um, You're welcome. For that because, mm. like, I wouldn't have... It wouldn't have come up. It's not something that will pop up on your Netflix feed. No, no. It's something God, that no. you do need to sit down and go, I'm going to watch this. Because... Be like, it's the kind of thing that, like I said, it's some, it, yeah. Rocky Horror I watched because it came up on Channel 7. Yeah. And mum was like, oh my God, yes, you should tape this and watch it. And I was like, okay. Oh, um, And I watched it with my brother and I was like 14 or something. And I was like, what? What, 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 what did I just watch? And now I watch it and I'm like, this is brilliant. Love Rocky Horror. Like, oh my God, what an amazing pioneering film. So much good stuff. Tim Curry. Oh my God. I mean, and I feel like this is a similar sort of thing. Like this, this film happened to me and but I was I, just like, wow. But I don't think that this will be as, as televised as. No, or, I don't or think it ever will be. Easily accessible um, yeah. as, as something like Rocky Horror. And Rocky Horror is pretty cult. But yeah, this is more culty. Yeah. This is even. this is subcult. This is something which of course probably when it came out had a really bad rep because of course there was a lot of problems. It was very mm. cursed. They had political production problems. Um it didn't do great in the box office and it probably just kind of it drifted away. Bombed, yeah. Um and then and somebody probably discovered it again. But like in now the 90s yeah. the 2000s we're and just able went- to we're able to watch this now, though, yeah. free from all of that contextual drama from the late 80s from and early 90s. Years ago, yeah. um, and we can just enjoy it as this amazing, surreal film Bizarre that thing. makes us think. And like the whole point we watch film and we get involved in cinema and, and, and television is this to suspend disbelief, to yeah, escape. And to tell stories. Well, this is actually a film about escapism and yeah. about suspending your disbelief. Mm. Like very, very few times in cinema these days do they actually say, all right, sit down. We're putting on a pl- like we're putting on a movie in a theater with actors yeah. being actors telling a story. You're not as you're not as kind of aware of it. You, you, they kind of are like, oh no, like this is real life in inverted commas. You know, like yep. they're trying to sell you this. Like this is a real world. That Transformers that, really in, have always in a been world now. where this and this mm. and this. Like this is just like a parallel universe to us. This is not a parallel universe to us. This is like our universe, which is wacky. Mm. What was the one you said? Anachronistic. Yeah. Anachronistic. Mm. Anachronistic. Yeah. yeah. It could it just, literally just, be anywhere, anywhere. Just mm. straight up cartoonish as well. Like the other thing as well, obviously with. And like Bertolt doing all the running around. I'm like, oh, this is like, this is just a Roadrunner cartoon. Mm. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of things in this that I was looking at where I was just like, I've seen things like this in films since. Mm. Like a lot of this is very familiar. And I'm like, I don't know if they got it from here. Yeah. They got it from where, but. It's also interesting that this film, it was nominated for awards. Oh, really? Did it get any? Um, it did. Like a golden raspberry? <laughs> only, no, <laughs> no, like the good ones. Oh, okay. Um, it was nominated for four BAFTAs. And nice. it won three of them. It won Best Costume, Best Makeup, and Best Production Design. All the Fantastic. pretty Fantastic. Okay, yes. Pro- production Design. It did lose Best Special Effects to Back to the Future 2. Um, yeah. No, I feel like... 
it this yeah. could have it was also nominated be, for but, for four oscars yeah um best wow. up Best art direction, best costume yep. design, best yep. makeup, and best visual effects. Yep. But it lost all four to different oh, films. That'd be the other reason why it's gone into obscurity. Because if it doesn't win an Oscar, then nobody cares. Because mm. I don't get to put that nice gold edition cover on the top of it. Yeah, no, exactly. That makes sense, though. Like if they were winning all the production things, and and it really needed those. Oh yeah. What what I was also thinking then is obviously this resounds well with us because of our contextual background and where we are. Uh, Australian, you know, mm. you're British, um, and we have a lot of that culture down here in Australia. Ridiculous, absurdity. and I'm just it, ridiculous. <laughs> observed it. You're right. Uh, I'm just trying. Dot to bears, think. they exist. Watch out for them. So this film was. There's a lot of the sort of European continental. You can see a lot of the yes. production design, a lot of neoclassical, the, the classical architecture. You've got classical gods running around. You've got Turks. You've got French-ish. Yeah, it's very. In, you know, written by yeah. UK. I, I wonder how this would have landed. In America. In America, where in the they 80s. didn't have that contextual <laughs> the sort of... Mm. I, I feel like... Yeah. It, yeah. And it, I feel like as well, that landed. pantomimic quality to these characters as well, because pantomime is kind of seen as this, like, dumb, stupid British thing yeah. in England, in, mm. in, 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 in America, sorry. in yes, the US. Yeah. Um, and there's that, yeah, there's that kind mm. of idea of, like, oh, but, like... You know, it's just like a dumb British thing. So mm. it wouldn't surprise me. And as well, like if you think about contextually in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, you've got a lot of like women coming through who were like, you know, I'm going to like forge a career and like women are allowed to have credit cards now and all these kind of things to have these kind of like pandemic female roles in this that are fitting into those like, oh my God, damsel in distress archetypes with the exception of the little girl, which kind of mm. makes which is great. sense. Oh yeah, which no, is, no, which no, is no. Honestly, think of this story if but, it had been a little boy. Oh mm. no. Pfft. I think it's so much better with the little girl. No, it totally is. But all the adult female characters are all just kind of, they're there to be pretty or to like be Mm. squealing damsels in distress. They all advance the storyline though. They do. They do. But they're not the main characters. And I feel like that might have also had people be like, like, can you, how do you market this film? Mm. How do you market this to anybody? The the, the production company uh, and the distributors (laughs) just didn't bother. That's also Uh, why nobody's seen it. Partly because though, um, there was a lot of animosity because... Um, at the studios that are in charge of this, um, uh, particularly Columbia, yeah. there was a big change in regime. So David mm. Putnam, who was the original head producer of this film, was fired. And Columbia's new st- CEO, Dawn Steele, said at the time, whatever David Putnam has said before uh, doesn't interest me. So yeah. all of the projects that were ongoing when she took over were buried. Um, they received no wow. budgets and stuff. And, and Terry Gilliam yeah. spent so much time trying to convince Dawn that this wasn't a David Putnam movie, this was a Terry Gilliam movie. Yeah. But in the end, um, she she was not interested. Um, she, because they... She was like, clearly this isn't the future of movies. This is like a 70s weird... Yeah, well, and, whatever. and understandably, if you've just come in taking over a studio where they've had to fire the previous CEO and there's a film which is more than double over budget like you'd be like oh no i don't want if, anything to do with this if we wash appli- my hands of this if we're applying reason and logic to it yes mm-hmm. it's not gonna but it's fly. not about the reason and the logic it's about the fantasy and the mm. absurdism so you're saying that the secularism of the story actually was how it was in mm. real life affecting yeah. the story as well because the fact it was this killed movie by the bureaucracy is more important than it succeeding. As we were saying, it's a Mm. very meta Mm. film and it's more meta by the context in which it was Mm. made. So there you go. Would you guys like some trivia about Baron Munchausen? I would so love some (laughs) trivia. Yeah. Okay, all of this trivia is sourced from IMDb. So if it's not true, don't blame me. Uh, (laughs) Let's start with Robin Williams was a last minute casting after the budget had run out. Uh, he performed his role uncredited and went unpaid. He he asked for no money because, um, Cause, obviously. Because but... I bet he was just like, you want me to just <laughs> around, essentially. Mm. Uh, he is ca- shit. He's... Tickle some toes. He's... <laughs> that joke is so good. <laughs> Why is the queen making those noises? He, he, the king is tickling her feet. <laughs> and then he actually is just... That made me laugh so much the first time I saw this film. It was yeah. incredible. Um, like, yeah. yeah, Robin Williams was credited as Ray D. Tuto, which is actually uh, one of the lines he says at the start of the film uh, when he appears. Um, Ray D. Tuto. Yeah, Ray D. Tuto was his name. Um, this was Irma Thurman's first acting job. Correct. Although, because of the inordinate production delays for this movie, it didn't end up being her debut. Uh, she also belongs to the very short list of actors who were hired on their very first audition. Wow. wow. Mm. She's beautiful. She's really 
really good in this. Yeah. And, and she is stunningly beautiful. She's, and like she's cast as Venus. Yeah. Like, like of course. And like wow. that shot of her when the clam opens and those other ladies on wires fly in with the cloths. It 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 could have been silly and look stupid, but it's shot so beautifully. And because all the rest of them are so dazzled by her, mm. the narrative is telling you, you have to be dazzled by her as well. And you are. You are dazzled. Mm. She's stunning. And yeah, she does a really good job. She has yeah. a jaw that really you could good. actually cut yourself on. It's just amazing. Yeah, she does. She's yeah. absolutely stunning. And she's still stunning. She's, Get on you, Amy Thurman. We love you. Points. Yeah. Uh, John Neville was not a film actor at this time. What? Uh, was he a theatre person? He was a theatre person. Of course. Makes sense. He was a big fan of Monty Python, so agreed yes. to take the lead when they offered it to him. Amazing. Can you imagine being a theatre actor? Like, hey, we're going to do this crazy thing. It's mm. basically like a massive pantomime, but on screen. Mm. Let's go. That's incredible. You'd be like, yeah, man. Oh, by the way, it's being done by the Pythons. Oh, yeah. What a terrifying first experience as a, like, as a film well, actor. He, he'd, done, film. he'd done other films. It's just that he was predominantly theatre-based. Cool. I think this was his first that. film in 18 years. Bless. And like he was him. in his sixties when they did this. That's to be fair, so good. like I prefer theatre mm. to film myself. Uh, what? Oh, sorry, acting. Like doing it as an okay. actor, not like I mean, I don't know. I like watching. Films you don't have to like decide. You don't have to decide. I'm... I like both, but in terms of myself as a performer, I prefer stage. Look, but anyway, stage is great. You can you just you play to the audience. Every single time is different. Yeah, I've seen you guys on stage so many. I love it. Every single time is it different? But um, there's still just a beauty in the intimacy of of cinema and making it. And getting a stage actor to play Baron Munchausen in Great this choice. film with so many stage sets. Great choice. Yeah, like it's 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 mm. it's good casting. Perfect choice. It is. Eric Idle called the production quote a truly horrible experience, yeah, and Aww. even remembering it is a bit of a nightmare. End quote. Uh, he also said of the film quote up until Munchausen, I'd always been very smart about Terry Gilliam films. You don't ever be in them. Go and see them by all means, but to be in them, f- madness. End quote. I love Eric Idle. Yeah. I, I can imagine him saying that too. Sting's cameo came about because he was Terry Gilliam's neighbour at the time. <laughs> Just like, oh, hey, mate, are you are you you want you want to be in a film? Oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, he's probably he's probably thinking, yeah, I did June a few years ago. That was Fantastic. that was all right. I'll do this. That's all right. I'll do this. Yeah. Only for like well, a couple seconds. of weeks in Italy. <laughs> Yeah, basically. Um, Sarah Polly, nine years old at the time, uh, who played Sally, didn't enjoy making this film. She recalled the experience as being traumatic. Quote, It definitely left me with a few scars. It was just so dangerous. There were so many explosions going off all around me, which is traumatic to a kid, whether dangerous or not. Being in freezing water for long periods of time, working endless hours, it was physically grueling and unsafe. End quote. Now that is obviously pretty disheartening to hear yeah. um, you can see that and and she's also really good she this. does an amazing she, job she is that. she's a really good little she's actress. very good but and again it's difficult in in the current context where um obviously we in in the last week or so we have had someone on a film set be killed by a prop gun a, a prop gun that apparently had live rounds in it um the with the is it rust the the alec baldwin film yeah yeah so it, it is obviously something that is still very much an issue about the well, safety. Well, that's part of the reason why um, that uh, Ayatsi or however you, you say it, that's part mm. of the reason why they were striking because they were like, it's unsafe work conditions. Mm. They'd rather work us overtime for hours mm. and hours and hours and have us all exhausted yeah. than have another week's worth of filming and spend uh, more money. And the fact is, is like this, this film was under massive amounts of pressure to get done. Yeah. It was delayed so yeah. many times. And it's it's one thing for a bunch of adults to run around and potentially hurt themselves yeah but to put a kid in, to that, put a kid like, in danger is, is not is not acceptable and like that's that is disappointing to learn about this yeah um and it's just one of those things that and she's very small like I, I hope and expect is better in the current environment yeah you'd hope so but again maybe as much as i, I really love films like this and terry gilliam's like big bombastic like mm. yes explosions everywhere one of the advantages of not doing that is is that people don't get hurt needlessly yeah um or, or that all that risk gets minimized yeah and i mean there's 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 a there's a there's a degree of doing things safely but i mean you you only have to look at it even to to bring back in that whole peter jackson thing you know bloody john reese davies just being like I'm not going to learn any fight choreography. You come here and I'll hit you with my axe and then you come at me and mm. I'll hit you with my axe. Mm. Like, 
that was how he did fight scenes. I'm right. like, that is so dead. Like, it is. It's, it's so unsafe. It's like, it's, it's, like, that's, it's like, that's a funny story. Hmm. But also, I wonder how many people he actually, like, really badly well, I mean, injured. And having spoken is, to stunt people from the, those films. The, the oh, my God. The thing is, they all are adults, though. Yeah. And they can make no, that the decision. Very least, like yeah. when when we got to interview Marcello Vullian, um, who was a stuntman yeah. on Lord of the Rings, and he great. talked about the fact that he, you know, was the ring wraith that got set on fire, and how they didn't put the fire out on him properly. Go back One and listen time, to yeah. to that interview. It's a couple of years back. You'll enjoy it. Well, um, he was great. But yeah, but but the thing is, is he is a full he, grown he, he adult. He was a full grown adult yeah. who was on set as a professional stunt performer, knowing I'm agreeing to be set on fire in this way. And to go through these and safety it protocols. it could be dangerous. Like, stuff can yeah. potentially still go wrong no but matter for, how safe you try to be. But for you shouldn't be putting a, a, a minor in those positions. Yeah, no. I'm just thinking about... So she was she was nine when she did this. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's how old my niece is, nearly. And the thought of Emily being... put Like, she wouldn't cope with that no. many explosions. No. Well, I, it, it affects you. Yeah. It, it, and I mean, one thing I... I I did know, sorry to interrupt, but is, is that one of those soldiers, the, the soldiers that get killed on the wall, one of them was her dad. Oh. Like, as in, like, they had him on, no, so that he could be on set. Okay, yeah, yeah. Not not to traumatise a third. Oh, my God. But, but, <laughs> I was like, whoa. But yeah. still, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it still would yeah. linger. Like, it would linger. That's some PTSD right there on that child. Mm. It is dangerous. Mm. Film sets are a high-stress situation with yeah. some incredibly amazing talented people doing amazing things on a very short short mm. time span and yeah. it's always sad when safety gets compromised for saving money mm. yeah and i think as well a lot of the times and it's the same thing with theater as well you know a lot of safety protocols get implemented after there's been an accident mm. you know what i mean i mean so that happens th- there there yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, okay, trial and error. We've realized that this is probably not a safe way to do this. So maybe we mm. shouldn't do this this particular way or whatever. Um, like I know, a, I know, a, I know a theater that didn't have lights safety chained no. until a light fell down at an actress's feet. Not no. me, but a friend of mine. And if she had been literally like six inches further forward, she would have been dead because those big lanterns are very heavy. Mm. And she was very lucky. And now that particular theater always has them all safety change and all the things but that didn't happen they weren't because they didn't have the money to upgrade their stuff mm. you know what i mean and they were like yeah we need to do this because somebody nearly died and they were like oh yeah we should probably like we should probably do that mm. so yes um <sighs> moving on to other production issues yeah <laughs> oh boy yay <laughs> oh boy i mean <laughs> and and yeah. There were so many of them, though, and mm. I think that this hap- this film is so glorious despite all of this. It's still pretty mm. incredible. Yeah. 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 Uh, an outbreak of horse fever in Spain. Sorry, what? An outbreak of horse fever. Horse. Horse, horse fever. So yeah. the humans got the horses fever or the, no, the a, horses got The horses got, got a fever. Right. I don't think it was a bunch of like Spaniards going, you know what, horses are great. Let's run out in the street and celebrate. No, this was... Um, <laughs> horse fever. <laughs> a, a, an outbreak of horse fever in Spain meant that all the horses that had been training for months in Rome were forbidden to travel to the film's Spanish location. Oh, So no. that was one of the delays that they had. So oh, my God. That postponed that a lot of things. so expensive. Mm. Yeah, especially oh when no. you've been training them. And that, that lead horse does some amazing Stunts. things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Bucephalus is, is superb. Yeah. Um, originally, Terry Gilliam planned for there to be a whole herd of cows on the Vulcan set. Um, and then was only allowed one. One? Yes, be- <laughs> because of the escalating cost of the films and a revised budget, he was allowed one. <laughs> you get one oh, cow. We were literally like, why is there well. a cow on that set? We were, we were Because like, he was oh. like, if they're giving me a budget for a cow, goddammit, I'm going to use it. Mm. I respect Man. that. To yeah. finish, we've got uh, a couple of alternate castings. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. yeah, okay. And these are wild. Okay, I'm ready. Please go. <laughs> During an interview for Turn It Classic Movies, Terry Gilliam revealed that the producers tried to get Marlon Brando for the part of Vulcan. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Gilliam and Brando had a very enjoyable afternoon talking with one another. Oh. Until they were joined by the producer and Brando's agent. And then from that point, it wasn't going to be a possibility producers yeah <laughs> oh my god okay but marlon I'm brando just imagining is marlon brando yeah. is the yeah would you like to see the ballroom <laughs> like would you like to see the, the ballroom room. we just had it done yeah no they, <laughs> oliver reed's just like barely contained rage is 
I think we're just not done. Yeah, no, yeah. magical. The King of the Moon was um, also for an actor that I, I can't believe. It was originally intended for Sean Connery. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> The role... Um, I can see him in that outfit as well. Yeah. yeah. The role was originally going to be much bigger in the film. He's got very serious eyebrows. So Sean Connery didn't think it was kingly enough um, and, and decided not to be in the film. <laughs> um, so they, they... Of course he did. They Bloody snob. Yeah, they changed it to more comedic when they got Robin in. Makes Con- sense. Connery also was considered for playing Baron Munchausen, but eventually he withdrew from the project. I could see him. As Munchausen. Yeah. I could, I could too, but I'm mm. kind of, I'm still That really was just one of many know. times that I died. Yeah. Just like... I don't think he would have had the necessary twinkle in the eyes to... No. T- tell you what, though. All the nose. Old, old, old mate would have been really good if he wasn't so goddamn old for Dumbledore in terms of, like, yeah, twinkle yeah. in the oh, eye. Neville. Oh, wonderful. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he, he only passed away in 2011. He could have... He could have done it! He could have conceivably... Why did given Richard Harris a run for mm. money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some of the other actors that were considered for The King of the Moon include uh, Walter Matthau. Oh, yeah? Okay. Who, um would have <laughs> probably been... I don't know, it would have worked. He's a great actor. Mm. Um, but I, I almost feel like he would have been just that little bit too serious. Yeah. Uh, the other actor that was considered for the King of the Moon was Gene Wilder. Oh, oh wow. Wow, yeah. I, uh, Late 80s Gene Wilder. Very yeah. different. Wouldn't have been as, uh, I don't think it would have been as lusty, uh, but, <laughs> but I well, also... no, my dear, we have to... I could see I him... I don't pl- like the... I could see him playing the logical head. The logical head logical very well. Head. Yeah. No, but when I he's, just, when it, when I he's just going invented mad, sp- Oh, yes, you're like the tickling. Like, he would just be screaming yeah. the whole time. Yeah. Uh, finally... <laughs> An alternate casting for Munchausen, and this oh, yeah. is the one bit of casting where I'm like, actually, I think maybe I would have preferred to have seen this, as good okay. as John Neville is. A strong contender for the role was John Pertwee. <gasps> yes. Oh, what a what an unexpected turn of events. The third Doctor from Doctor oh, Who, for those who... Um, I, could, I could see that. He has that yeah. magnificence. And like his, 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 his... And the pompousness. His, his time as both the Doctor and then later as Wurzel Gummidge. Wurzel Gummidge. And like all his stuff yeah. with like... like He would have had that connection with, with the Sally character. I think he could have done some of the really fun... Yeah. Like, Arrogance Munch- and childish. You know what? Yes. Yeah, Munch- yeah, Munchausen does remind me a little bit, like, the fantastical and all of the, like, uh, mm. it does remind me a little bit of that, like, his relationship with Zelly is very, like, Doctor Companion-y. Yeah. Look, it's also... You know what I mean? You can also see John Hurt in that role. Yeah. Like, just blink. At one point, I thought it was John Hurt when he was in his yeah. old makeup, and then I was like, wait, no, that was John Hurt yeah. more recently. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. it was... Yeah, no, John Pertwee, I could see that. Mm. All the John's. The, the flam- flamboyousness. Mm. Yeah, the flamboyantness, absolutely. And I think he would have he would have engaged really well with the... With mm. children. With, with, of, course, of course, John Pertwee had that amazing connection to, to kids. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but John Neville was also really good. Oh, he yeah, was fantastic. So yeah, like it's, he it's, blew that out of the water. Yeah. It's, Literally. Yeah. <laughs> At some points. Yeah. He jumped on oh a cannonball, gosh, yes. flying one way, flying back the other way. He was just superb. That was so that was good. one hell of a shot. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I <laughs> I said that a lot. I said I said that a lot. Yeah. Um, so all that remains for us to do oh is no. to score the film. Oh no! And Christy, oh, no. it was your first time. <laughs> it was your first time watching uh, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, uh, and you get to score it out of ten. Hmm. So what score would you give this film out of ten? Oh my gosh. I'm struggling because I don't have a scale. Do I rate it cinematically or just on the, you know, the amazing vision or or should you watch this? Oh, look, I, I definitely want to say it's like a, like eight and a half ornate dragon cannons out of ten. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So eight. Eight and, I can't go eight and a half. You can yeah, go eight and a half. You can go eight, eight and a half. Eight and a half, yeah. I feel okay. it's an eight and a half. Yeah, okay. that's fair. Uh, what about yourself, Ellen? Yeah, probably about the same. I'm going to give it eight um, Venus... De Milo. Oh yeah. Mm. We should all do with eight Venus De Milos in our lives. Out of out of ten. Yeah. yeah, this 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 film is ridiculous and it just it just tickles me. Mm. It just tickles me. Yeah, tickles your feet. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wasn't except say not that. because I'll leave that to you, Dr. Ex- ex- no, except not because I would kick anybody who tried to tickle my feet because mm. I hate being tickled. I hate it. Yeah, if Ellen was the floating head, she'd be going, No, 
stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, I would be like, I'm going to stab you. No, like, yeah, no, I can't yeah. deal with it. I don't um, want feet oh to go. My and my feet is the worst. Yeah. Wow. For, for me, I, I'm not going to give it a 10. I'm just going to say that straight up. That's because I, I, I do acknowledge that it's not exactly a perfect film. No. I think but, but I don't remember a film that's made me like just smile so much it's just so silly like, and engage <laughs> yeah it's so silly <laughs> it's it's wonderful it's it's lovely seeing a lot of these performers quite a lot of performers that have passed on as well oh yeah um but seeing them in just their prime doing this this incredible work i love a bit of eric idol and that bit where he went to run to save um the baron and he tripped on a rock and fell off the cliff oh i i burst out laughing i did i'd forgotten about that and it was, it was just so good brilliant and the film is filled with those moments there's and him trying the, to get the bullet yeah and then using the the, the, <laughs> the gauntlet to like ping, ping. deflect it and then it eventually hits the assassin it hit it's just a, a superb silly adventure um and one that i'm really glad that we watched and that i that i picked for this birthday film because it it's so funny. It's just, it's just a gorgeous film. And it really is. I think it's going to last. I, I well. really would implore anyone that's listening, if we haven't convinced you, just go find it. Just watch it. I was taken aback, so yeah, yeah, definitely go find it. It's well worth it. Go into it and just, just prepare to be uh, swept away on on this fantastical voyage. Um, I would probably give this film nine spinning horses out of ten, because again, ridiculous. <laughs> that was. Just wonderful. Um, So that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, Dr. Ellen and Christy, thank you so much for joining me on the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Thank you very much for having me and happy birthday. Thank you. And uh, yes, me on this film. I'm so happy I was on it. Happy debut, Christy. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me on, guys. I can't believe I have... Haven't been on yet, so thank you very much. Yeah, it's most welcome. Pleasure. And for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening in. Uh, we are coming towards the end of the year, as you know, October tends to herald. Uh, <laughs> so we have a few more uh, fun episodes between now and uh, the end of December. If you want to know what they are, you need to subscribe. We're available to be subscribed to on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and you can get those episodes straight to your device of choice each and every week. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club on those services. We have a Facebook page uh, where we get news and updates. You can vote on film polls, all that sort of thing. There is a film poll going up at the start of November that I think you're all going to enjoy. So um, look out for that by searching for the Cinema Catch-Up Club on Facebook. And finally, we have a Patreon. Uh, Yes, you can get bonus goodies, uh, extras, things like that for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, Just search for us at patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast. But that's all for this week. So until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.